Ezra chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second month, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, uh, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites, from twenty years old and upward, to supervise the work of the house of the Lord, and Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together, supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's nice out today. I did notice it hit 92 on Friday. That's horrible, because it means that summer's around the bend here, and that's bad news to me. Summer has good news, too. Vacations are nice in summer, right? One of my favorite family events is we go to Knobles every year. I've mentioned this before. It's like Dorney Park, but without, like, chaperone rules. And... Um, we just put Knoebel's Day on the calendar, and that's great. And I'm going to take the kids, and that happens to be on my anniversary, because what better way to spend an anniversary than apart from each other? I'm so good at this. Um, that's all right. We'll do something. Yeah, George will appreciate the quiet. Um, but I look forward to Knoebel's Day uh, for a number of reasons. But part of the experience for me is I always, always drive home in the dark through Centralia, Pennsylvania, and I do that because it's more thrilling than the haunted houses, even at uh, Knoebel's. And that's because Centralia is a true American ghost town, and everybody was forcibly moved out, like back in the 60s and 70s, except for a few angry holdouts who don't really want you there. And, uh, and that's because there's a coal fire burning under the town. Uh, and horror movies should be filmed there. Maybe they have, I don't know. It's, it's creepy and it's weird, especially at night. Uh, but a couple years ago, we were driving through there at night, and much to our surprise, we're driving through town in the only intersection there, and somebody was setting off fireworks somewhere in the town. And I was like, what in the world are you celebrating? Like, this place is an abandoned mess. It's disgusting. It was weird and strangely kind of cheerful and lively. And I, I, I think that that's a good picture of Jerusalem where we left off here in the days of Ezra. 
Uh, we've been talking about coming home from the exile and finding rubble, uh, which maybe dovetails well with what Rachel was sharing this morning about Ukraine. Uh, Ezra's a good book for that suffering nation as well. But last week, we, we left our heroes worshiping and partying, I said, in the graveyard and, and in the ruins and the rubble. And they're doing this in spite of their hardships and in spite of the lack of permanent housing and in spite of their fear of the locals and in spite of the fact that the money was probably somewhat tight. And they started by rebuilding the altar, and they didn't do that just for show. They started using it immediately. They started with the morning and the evening sacrifices right away. And I don't want you to miss what tremendous effort that had to require and what great sacrifice, which I guess that makes sense. It takes to sacrifice to make sacrifices, you know. Um, you know, we know that some churches meet in rented spaces, right, and they have to set up chairs every week, and, like, that's a burden. But imagine that, like, to the umpteenth degree here in your temporary setting, right? They're living out of their suitcases, and the locals are not eager to have them here at all to begin with, and yet here they are keeping this altar service going at almost all hours, and it almost seems impossible. I noticed this week that all the animals that were listed that they brought with them uh, from Babylon in verses 66 and 67, none of them are the sacrificable animals. Uh, It mentions horses and mules and camels and donkeys, but what they needed were bulls. And maybe they brought a bunch of bulls, and maybe they had to buy them once they got there, but it's a lot of bulls either way, right? And think about the fuel that it requires to burn up a bull, right? It takes a lot of wood to burn that much bull. And, you know, I was mad last month. I, I, was, I was smoking pork, and I, I didn't realize my wood pellets had been water damaged, and so Georgia made this emergency run because we had company coming. And you know, But lightly smoking meat, you know, that takes a lot of pellets, I've learned. And to burn it to ash requires a constant bonfire going. And this is in a region that is largely desert, Right. I looked online, I was like, does Israel have forests? And it was like, well, yes, indeed, there are some forests in Israel, but they were all planted in like the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and it was, it was an actual conscious nationwide project. They're going to make the desert green, right? Uh, that wasn't the case in Ezra's day. There would be trees and wood, but not in great abundance. Much of the land had been stripped bare during the war, and that's also partly why they have to import lumber, Right. And so this is going to take a lot of money. And they're scraping the bottom of the barrel for everything they have. Back in chapter 2, verse 69, it says they gave money in in Dareks and Minas. Those are two different denominations. They're basically scraping together whatever they have. It's Greek money, Babylonian money, whatever they have. Uh, And this whole project requires incredible effort, significant expenses. And yet they make it happen because that's what they came for, was to reinstitute the worship. And they don't wait till they get all their ducks in a row. They just jump in. And so the sacrifices have to continue now. Even as they're moving on to the next steps, you have to keep that going. So this is a draining enterprise, is what I'm getting at. And they did this with nothing but a heap of rocks for two years. Now, one might ask, why did they wait that long? Commentators uh, differ on this point. Some say that it wasn't really two years. It means the second year. Maybe it was only a few months. Uh, Maybe it was because of the winter. They don't want to build in the winter. I don't know. Uh, Some say it was a failure of leadership. Uh, My tendency is to blame the supply chain. That's the modern fashionable way of putting it, isn't it? 
Uh, verse 7 says that they paid a lot of money up front. They gave the money to the builders, but because they're not exactly loaded, apparently, they had to barter for the supplies. So look again at verses 6 and 7. Uh, it says, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt, sac- uh, burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation wasn't laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa. Okay, so they bartered with these Lebanese cities, Tyre and Sidon, and that makes sense. Lebanon is still known for its massive cedar trees. If you ever play sporkle quizzes about national flags, Lebanon's the easy one. It's got the big green tree right in the middle of it. Uh, And Tyre and Sidon are cities that are up there, and they had occasionally been under Israel's control or Israel claimed control, but there had been ongoing conflict with these cities over the years, Uh, but now they're a part of the same Persian tax district, and business is business, so they agree to trade with these people, and uh, Cyrus had given blessing. Uh, But it takes time to make that happen. Months, maybe even years, and you can't really build while you're waiting on the lumber. Uh, Two weeks ago, I, I finally hired a company to replace that garage door I've mentioned. I never heard back from them. So I I reached out this week and I was told, well, we don't schedule the work until we have the supplies. And because of the supply chain issues, uh, we don't expect your door to come in for another eight, nine weeks. And I'm like, great. In other words, the garage door that I ordered so that this summer I could get the bikes and the lawnmower out uh, a little easier is going to come right around the time I don't need it anymore and it's getting cold again. Like, okay, great. The Jews are faced with kind of a similar problem. You know, they, they, they worship and they celebrate daily. They're waiting for the lumber to show up, and, and they could maybe have laid the foundation part e- earlier, but they wouldn't get really far beyond that, and there's nothing worse than starting a project only to realize you're missing vital parts. I know because I've been there, and I have been the guy that makes six to ten trips to Home Depot in a single day to finish something, right? So the Jews are wisely waiting for the supplies to show up, and it's going to show up in Joppa. If you remember Joppa, that's where Jonah ran away from in our last series. That's the major port city in Tel Aviv. Joppa is like the Amazon drop box for ancient Israel. So some poor sap here probably had the job of checking daily to see if the packages arrived, right? But anyway, here in the second year, second month, during the spring, this is April or May, the wood arrives. And now the work of building God's house can finally begin. And that's great. So the work gets rolling in verse 8. It says, Now in the second year, after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who would come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and their brothers. Okay, great. We got a whole work crew assembled here. And Zerubbabel and Jeshua are leading the charge. You don't know a whole much, a lot about them yet. We're going to learn more as the chapters unfold here about Zerubbabel and Jeshua. But it's enough to know for now that these two guys represent the line of David and the priestly line, respectively. So they're not just random guys. Uh, Zerubbabel has a Babylonian name, but he's actually in the kingly line of David. Uh, Jeconiah, who was the last acting king of Judah, had been his, his grandfather. So he's acting here as Cyrus's governor over the project. And Jeshua, or other places he's called Joshua, he's acting as the new high priest, and he's actually a descendant of Aaron. 
So there's a sort of shadow kingdom being set up here. Uh, someone pointed out at Bible study on Wednesday that there was no early power struggle among the returned exiles. Uh, they didn't worry about uh, getting all of this straightened out, but partly because they already knew who these leaders were going to be, because these guys had some pedigree. Uh, so you have this exiled government, uh, in a sense, and it's not as glamorous as Return of the King or anything. Zerubbabel is no Aragorn, uh, but he is David's descendant, and Jeshua really is Aaron's descendant, and so it feels kind of exciting. They're finally doing what they came for. So, so they get the priests and the Levites together, and they lay this foundation. <clears throat> in verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. That's a lot of noise. Just to clarify, this is only a foundation, right? Uh, foundations are not particularly exciting things in and of themselves. That's not the sexy part of the building. It's just the stones and the blocks at the base. This is the part that will ultimately be mostly buried and invisible. It's not the time to rest on your laurels, exactly. And yet we are told that the party gets started. There are trumpets and there are cymbals. There is brass and there is percussion. It's like marching band, the noisy instruments. I'm the son of a trumpeter. Both of my brothers played trumpet. The running gag is that there is no more obnoxious section in an orchestra than the trumpet section. Everybody knows this. The conductor's job is to bring them down, rein them in a little bit. Trumpeters like to make noise. And for the same reason, you should never give a toy trumpet to a child. I don't know why people do such things. I have to hide the tin whistles in my house. It's the same principle. And likewise, no parent wants their child to learn the drums. Somebody has to do it. I understand that. But let it be somebody else. Let it be some other family lord. It requires a detached garage. I do have that, but why bother the neighbors either? But they bring out all the noisemakers, like New Year's Eve, right? Why? Because even small steps are worth celebrating. God has been faithful to give them a start. They've made a start. And Ezra says that in doing this, they're being obedient to the commands of David. Now, to the best of my knowledge, there's no explicit command from David regarding making racket for the temple's foundation. Because as you may recall, David never lived to see the original temple. His son Solomon had it built. But David is credited with being the greatest musician in Israel's history. He's Billy Joel, Elton John, Paul McCartney, all wrapped up into one, right? He wrote all kinds of music. He was a prodigy on the harp from his childhood, and he sang about everything, and he wanted everybody else to sing about everything. He wrote psalms covering every topic, every occasion has an appropriate song, and so this was not necessarily a law written down in a formal sense for this time specifically. They're making music because that's what God's people do. We make a joyful noise, even an obnoxious noise, unto the Lord. 
And it's not just racket, let's be fair here. There's a melody here. There are people who join in singing, verse 11 says, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So it's not just the priests and the Levites, right? That's the band. And it's not just the choir, the professional singers here. Everyone gets in on the worship hour, and they sing responsively. The professional musicians are leading the worship like a worship band, and they sing a verse, and then the people respond loudly, in unison, shouting, Ezra says, like white girls singing Sweet Caroline at a wedding. But this is better than Neil Di You know what I'm talking about. But this is better than Neil Diamond. What are they singing? Basically, they're singing our Jonah theme song, like Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It's just step one. It's just the foundation. It's some rocks in a ditch organized in a rectangle. That's what this is. Nothing is finished. Nothing feels secure. But the Lord is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. And it's never too early to praise God for his goodness and love. Like we said last week, you don't have to know all the details to praise him. The job doesn't need to be done before you make a joyful noise. But not everybody's feeling so chipper. Verse 12 and 13, many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Well, that's kind of a buzzkill. Who cries at a party other than Leslie Gore? Nobody under the age of 60 should know what I'm talking about when I say that. I'm sorry. See, now, I know the foundation's not all that interesting, but I also know that excitement tends to be infectious. Uh, if everyone else is excited, it usually rubs off, and that's why fair-weather fans get on the bandwagon when the local team gets hot, right? The Philadelphia, Philadelphia's had that multiple times in the last year. Uh, you know, and you find yourself in a championship, and suddenly all the swag starts selling out, right? Like, everybody wants a reason to party. I didn't care before now. And you think the same would be true here. Like, if you can get excited about celebrating the Feast of Booths when you have nothing, surely you can appreciate the excitement of finally starting the temple. Sure, it doesn't look like much, but the foundation, that's a critical thing. It has to happen, you know? Like, if you build a deck, the worst part is burying the posts. That, that's the most sweating you're going to do, and it doesn't look like much, but it's progress. And this doesn't seem like the right time to weep and wail, but that's what happens. And the weeping is almost as loud as the praise band. The brass and all the percussion and the great shouts all gets muddled up with people who are weeping aloud. Now, I don't know about you, but when I cry, and I do cry, I tend to try to keep it quiet, uh, because like most men, I find it embarrassing, and so I try to hide the fact that I'm crying. Uh, it is a rare thing for me to cry out loud. It's not really a thing. Uh, and the closest that that would come to is if no one is home. 
And even then, it doesn't compete with a praise band. But that's what painful, gut-wrenching mourning can sound like. We, we were at a, a funeral, George and I, recently, and the loudest mourner there was not the widower. It was an older gentleman who was there. He spoke no English, but he could not contain his grief. Uh, he was agitated. He was almost angry, and everyone could hear him because he was in pain in his soul. And that's how some people felt when the foundation of the temple was unveiled. They are literally screaming out in pain and an internal torment of soul. Why? Who cries at a party? These are the kids that you send home, right? Like, why now... After all this time, would you weep over this particular thing? Ezra doesn't go to a great length to explain it explicitly, but the context gives some important clues. I, I tried reading this as like, well, could it be tears of joy? That doesn't work. Ezra directly contrasts those who are weeping with those who are shouting for joy. So who's crying? Well, it's not a random assortment of people. Who is it? It's the elderly the ones who were old enough to remember the last temple, the ones who know what was lost. In other words, the ones who have a basis for comparison. They know from when they were young boys what Solomon's temple looked like, something we still can't even dream and don't know fully. But they remember the stately columns and the huge stones, and the sheer grandeur that is the remnant of the richest king that this nation has ever known. The king that other monarchs came from afar just to visit and see the opulence of his kingdom. They remember, and this is not a return to the glory days. They look at this foundation cobbled together with the broken stones of the old temple, and it looks like a joke by comparison, like a child's drawing of Solomon's temple. Like dollar store Legos that don't click the right way. The new glory does not compare with the old. It's a cheap imitation showing up on Antiques Roadshow. The experts know the difference. It's a bad replica. It's something made out of recycled rubble. And they're right! It's not really that impressive. And we know this to be true in part because several centuries later, Herod the Great made a point of renovating and expanding the temple to actually make it look impressive. When Jesus visits the temple and his disciples are admiring the large stones, they say, and, and all of the beauty of it, and they're telling Jesus, boy, look at this thing. What they're talking about is Herod's additions, not the original framework. To this day, archaeologists can tell the difference between Herod's work and the old work by the size of the stones. This new temple is a cheap imitation of what Solomon built. And so the old men mourn and weep. And when you think of it that way, I get it. Because even at its best, even if everything goes right, it won't be the same. Not remotely. And in many ways, it'll be decidedly inferior. So they weep. And they weep with regret 
and remorse, maybe shame and disappointment. And meanwhile, others rejoice and feel exuberant. They're the ones setting off fireworks in Centralia because they have no basis for comparison and they are eager for some sort of win. And this line of rocks represents progress. It's exciting for them. It makes a statement. A small foundation is better than no foundation. And so they rejoice. It's the biggest party they've thrown yet. And why not? Why not celebrate small victories? I mean, we'll see soon that this must mean something because this little accomplishment is seen as a threat by the locals. We're going to learn more about that coming up. So it must mean something, so they rejoice. But the very thing that causes rejoicing causes others to mourn. How can that be? And maybe more importantly, who's right? Is this a time for mourning or a time for dancing? Matthew Henry, one of the great commentators, says that this is actually, he implies that it's sinful on the part of the elderly in this scene, that they are sullying a joyful event. He says that they are despising the day of small things. There could be some truth there. But I don't think that's the truth that Ezra is getting at. Ezra makes no comment here, no judgment of who is right in this case. What he says is that the noise mingled together and that the sound was heard even from far away. The rejoicing and the weeping of God's people mingles together in one loud cry and everyone can hear it. And you know what? God can hear it. And while it's impossible for us to distinguish the joy from the sorrow in this scene, God could see it, and he can distinguish. And the fact is, I think the mingling is even true for some extent, even among just the old men. Verse 11 says that all the people shouted in praise. The difference is that some of the people praised with a smile, and others did so through tears. And Ezra makes no comment on which is right or wrong. Emotions are complicated things, aren't they? I said earlier, I, I am a crier. And do I always know why exactly I'm crying? The fact is, no. Uh, I can start off sad on a given day because I'm behind in my writing this week, again. And then I think of how frustrated I am with everything else that happened this week that got me to this point. And then I think about how, as I'm working hard on trying to catch up, uh, how I have ignored and neglected time with my kids because I'm behind. And then I think about how I snapped at one of them earlier unfairly. And then I can hear Harry Chapin singing Cats in the Cradle in the back of my head. And I think to myself, like, boy, I am a lousy dad. And then I'm thinking, like, well, my dad was a good dad. Why can't I be more like my dad? Oh, man, I miss my dad. And then, you know, by the end of it all, it's just like it, it, it's this deteriorating thing, and then you're all emotional. Like, emotions are often a rabbit trail like that. And, and tears can seem senseless at times. 
But David says in Psalm 56, verse 8, he says of God, to God, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Our God does not despise your tears. Even if they blind you to the good things that are happening, he doesn't despise them. He bottles them. He knows. This scene is a picture of God's people. His ancient people, what is their name? We call them Israel. What does that mean? It means wrestles with God because Jacob wrestled with God and that name gets applied to the whole nation. Not the people who worship God, the people who wrestle with God. That's what God's people do. We wrestle with God, and sometimes we weep, and sometimes we rejoice. We praise him through smiles, and we praise him through tears. Weeping and rejoicing and the music all blend together before the throne, and God hears it all. Now, I can't promise that our future, your future, will look any more glorious than this foundation of rubble that is described here. But what I think this passage can say to us is that it's okay to mourn changes and it's also okay to rejoice. And we can praise God either because we're not, <laughs> we can praise God because we're not building on recycled rubble. We're the church of Jesus Christ. He is himself the cornerstone. The crucified, resurrected Lord is our foundation and you'll get no more solid foundation than that. It's okay to mourn changes and losses. I, I keep thinking back to the other week, the loss of Tim Keller and Harry Reader. I'm like, they're like the Solomon's Temple. I've heard them preach. I've heard me preach. I feel like Ezra's pile of rubble. George and I went to Steve Smallman's memorial service on Thursday, Denham Wayne, and uh, we felt devastated because part of how I felt is like when will God raise up another Steve Smallman and we wept and rightfully so because the loss is very real but beloved the church was not built on Steve Smallman and it wasn't built on Tim Keller and it wasn't built on Harry Reader and it wasn't built on John Calvin or on Martin Luther or St. Augustine or Peter, or Paul. It's built on Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and on that rock, his church is built. What else matters? It's not ultimately about the temple building, and it's not about you or me. It's about Jesus, who's our spiritual foundation. We may sometimes worship him through tears in this day and age, but a day is coming when none of us will weep again. And the sound of praise in heaven is not going to be mingled like it was here in Ezra. The tears will be gone and only joy will remain because our future glory with Jesus is going to outshine even the glory days here on earth. We have no glory here that compares with that. 
My gospel says that all of this is passing, but we are built on the rock of ages and we will stand. He'll strengthen us, help us, and cause us to stand upheld by his righteous omnipotent hand. So cling to Jesus, our firm foundation. No matter what happens to you or me or this particular church, cling to Jesus and you will stand. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this book, Lord. And what a scene, Lord, what a paradox to see such joy and sorrow mingled into the praise. Lord, we feel that. We, we come here with all kinds of burdens and feelings and emotions, Lord. We come here with joy and fear and anger and all kinds of things that we pick up through the week. Lord, we pray that you would hear and receive our praises anyway. Teach us to praise you through our tears and as much as we do through our joy. And help us to cling to and rest on the cornerstone, Lord, the thing that is unmovable. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is building his church and that he himself is the cornerstone. It is an unshakable foundation, much more impressive than anything they built in Ezra's day. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him. Go. Cool.